China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. And this week, I'm joined by three special guests. Carl Minster, a senior fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and a professor of law at the Fordham Law School. Andrew Polk, the co-founder of Trivium, and Gerard Pippo, a senior fellow in the economics program here at CSIS. Today, we're going to do a slight change in format from the traditional show after Gerard, Andrew and I did a roundtable discussion on Taiwan issues a few weeks ago. We thought it might be worth from time to time having a roundtable discussion to just catch up on what our policy developments in China. Obviously, here the focus is everything is on great power competition, but China has a lot going on that is related to, but but distinct from great power competition. And as far as I know, there's there's not any regular program where folks sit around and discuss what's happening in the most recent Politburo meetings, for example, or, or other major policy developments. So Andrew and Gerard, with occasional special guests, will be a more regular feature of the podcast. And so today, I thought it would be a good moment to stop and look at the state of the Chinese economy through the lens of uh, recent convenings by uh, the Politburo, but also two two bodies, the Central Financial Economic Affairs Commission and the Commission of Comprehensively Deepening Reform. So we've had, just over the past month, you know, three meetings of these important bodies with the April Politburo uh, meeting and then the two, the Comprehensively Deepening Reform and the Central Finance and Economic Affairs Commission. So what we'll do for the conversation today is we'll start with a high level of what coming out of those meetings, what signals is Beijing sending about the policy environment, how it's diagnosing the economy. And then in the Central Financial and Economic Affairs Commission readout, we saw that there was two focus points of that meeting. One is on this idea of a modern industrial system, and then the second was on demographics or or population uh, development. So one of the reasons we roped Carl in is because Carl has been thinking from the lens of domestic politics and policy about this issue of demographics for a while and just wrote a really great article in Foreign Affairs, which we'll make sure we link to in the show notes. So why don't we start with the Politburo meeting on April 24th. April Politburo meeting is is almost always a check-in on the economy. We saw from the readout Beijing saying that what had, you know, they talked about these triple pressures of demand contraction, supply shocks, and weakening expectations. Those have been, quote, eased. Um, and economic growth is better than expected. Market demand is gradually recovering. So, Andrew, I wanted to start with this. What is your assessment of where the meeting readout came out and how other analysts outside of government are looking? Are there is there an alignment from Beijing and external analysts, or, or where is their delta? So we wrote about this when it came out, and the way we put it was, this is the report card that the Politburo gives to the economy. It would say, good progress, but needs help to do better, (laughs) right? So they overall seem pretty satisfied with where they are, right? They said growth was better than expected, but that there's issues that they need to to address. So they say endogenous drivers of growth aren't strong, demand is still insufficient, and economic transformation and upgrading is facing new resistance. So we like where we are as of Q1. Q1, but we need to do more to help 
kind of consolidate the recovery. Then they went on to talk about consumption, like that consumption is still the issue that hasn't, or the, the, the part of the economy that hasn't really recovered. And they understand or indicated that they understand that it's because household confidence is still incredibly low after the abrupt exit from zero COVID, three years of the zero COVID policy. So they talked about some things that they're going to do to address that, trying to boost rural incomes or middle and low incomes. So which, you know, the NDRC has talked about, talked about it at the two sessions in March, which we think we might start to see some policy actions in NDRC this is the National Development Reform Commission, right? Right, yeah. And so they're the, the macro planner, and they're, they, you know, they don't oversee the SOEs, but they work with a lot of them. And our thinking is that we might start to see some transfers from the state to workers, particularly workers at SOEs here pretty soon. I think in terms of you know, how the Chinese leadership views the economy and external folks view the economy. I think it's actually pretty similar, but the Chinese are slightly more sanguine, right? So I think the markets saw zero COVID, said China's going to come roaring back. You saw like Chinese assets just go ballistic, especially anything related to the reopening. But then the market was a little bit more disappointed by the first three months of data. And this April data that's that's just starting to come out actually was it shows kind of a step back as well. So I would say overall the market is saying, yeah, growth is okay, but it needs to do better. The Chinese leadership is saying growth's pretty good, but also agreeing that it needs to do better. Gerard, what is the the consumption story over the last few months? It seems, of course, there was an expectation when COVID policies were suddenly lifted, we were going to see this massive rebound in pent-up consumption. That, To some extent, some of that has happened, but as Andrew was just saying, and as indicated in the meeting readout, Beijing is still would like to see more progress there. Why is consumption lagging behind what Beijing would like to see? And what's the difference between how Beijing is describing the reasons for this and, and what, what others watching this are, are describing this as being caused by? So this recovery cycle is different than others because normally the Chinese government will try to get the economy back on track by doing a whole bunch of stimulus. They are doing some, but on an incremental basis, it's actually pretty small. It's kind of the same level in RMB terms as last year. So what's different is they're basically relying on the household sector to naturally come back just because of reopening. The theory, if you go back, say, in late 2022 when they just started reopening, the, a lot of the optimism that you saw in markets was because of this idea of, of, of like excess savings. So the idea that households had saved an extra amount because their, their consumption had been suppressed because they couldn't go out, they couldn't travel, et cetera. And therefore, once they reopened, that would be they would sort of spend down that, that savings and the economy would roar back. What we've actually seen in the data is that savings rates are still high. They have not come down, which is actually not consistent with the idea that you would be spending down the excess savings. There is rapid comparatively rapid consumption growth, but it's actually not all that fast by China standards. What's keeping it back is a combination of weakened consumer sentiment, which Andrew mentioned, um, and frankly, in, just income growth is is lower than it was before, before COVID. And so basically, households are wary. A lot of what households spend money on is it's what shows up as consumption, but also is investment, which is buying property. And the property sector is quite weak. There's a slight recovery, but it's still not anything to write home about. 
And so basically, um, a lot of other things are linked to that, like the idea of big ticket items, things like washing machines or whatever. People buy those, quote, durable goods because they have a new house or something, right? But they're not buying the new houses. So that, that consumption is weak, too. So basically, the, the theory of recovery was that it would just sort of magically get back on the trend. And it has not. It's, it's improving, but it's definitely not catching up to what it was before COVID. And I would just say, yeah, I think that income piece is huge. So I think in the first quarter, income growth, real income growth was just under 2%. 2019, it was 5%. You dial back three years previously, it was averaging around 9%. So this is kind of a structural and cyclical trend. And obviously, <laughs> after you know the, the psychological impact of COVID and your wealth is growing much more slowly, or I guess your income is growing much more slowly, you're not going to just jump back into into purchasing the same way. Well, and your you wealth if it's in housing. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. Can I ask what you see about youth unemployment? I mean, do Chinese leaders view this as like a cyclical thing or is it something that's just an artifact of COVID zero or they view this as a more latent long-term issue and policies that they're contemplating to address this? That's a good one. I mean, obviously, unemployment's always on the mind, right? I do think they view this as more of a a long-term structural issue. And I mean, we'll get into this when we talk about the demographics, but all of this, the industrial upgrading, the focus on innovation, focus on population, it's all intertwined, right? Part of the big problem is the Chinese economy is not structured in the way that would provide jobs of the type that fresh graduates would like to do, right? They don't want to go work in the factories. They don't want to be farmers. And so, and there's only so many tech workers that you can have, so many jobs available. So having a more modernized economy creates more modern jobs and can suck up some of that excess labor. Can I ask on the, one of the things that came out of the, the meeting readout as well was a, a statement that was interpreted by many as, as the tech regulatory crackdowns are essentially done or this phase of them is done. I'm curious, any thoughts from anyone on the lasting effects of of the summer of 2021? I wonder to what extent even soothing statements coming out of a, a singular Politburo meeting, which may indicate the end of this phase of, of a potential campaign, I would imagine. And just trying to tie this back to issues of the future of the technology sector. I imagine just a lot of the damage is done, and this is not any indication that more aggressive regulatory actions against technology companies are off the are off the books for the future. But just curious, what what signal do you this do you think this sent? And how how is this interpreted? Yeah, I mean, I'd say we have a whole practice that looks at tech regulation, and it's been an absolute love in with the tech companies <laughs> over the past six to eight months, which is an abrupt about face. And it's pretty clear that there was this disjointed, aggressive regulatory crackdown along several fronts. It went too far too fast, I think. And now regulators now are, are understanding, oh, we need these tech companies to keep jobs stable. They oh. provide a ton of jobs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I don't necessarily think the damage is done, quote unquote, from the standpoint of like the tech companies are like, oh, there's no no space for us to flourish. But rather, 
they're not as profitable now because of all, all those uh, actions that were taken, which I think many of them were proper actions like trying to reduce monopolistic behavior, trying to get companies to better protect data. But when you start denting profitability, it's much harder for them to hire new workers. And so I think their regulators now throwing their arm around the tech company saying, okay, help us out, guys. <laughs> I would add that you know in real time it's often hard to figure out what is cyclical versus structural. And on the youth unemployment issue, which relates to the tech sector, is it's something like twenty percent or close to it, twenty percent unemployment. But that data only goes back to twenty eighteen, and you know it's actually normal in many countries, including the U.S., for young workers to have higher unemployment rates than, than the average. But in China, it's clear that there is like a secular trend from 2020 onwards. So basically COVID until now, it's sort of just a, kind of a straight line going up. There is There are arguments about, oh, it's lying flat type of culture. It's maybe because the tech sector is, is weak. My radical idea is that it's just weak aggregate demand. And I think this is a case where sort of comparative economics matters because in the U.S., after 2008, 2009, we had a very slow economic recovery. It took about a decade, actually, to get back to full employment. And at the time, if you go back and look at, say, 2013, 2014, there are a lot of people in the U.S. saying that the high unemployment rates were because of structural unemployment factors. And over time, those arguments were rebutted because the economy got back to full employment. And so my there might be part of it that it's tech regulations, lower profitability, and some structural factors there. But I think it's really just that the Chinese economy is weak, and that's, that's why those jobs are, are not there. Real estate sector was uh, also was also mentioned in the Politburo readout. Especially, I'm curious, Andrew, how do you interpret this? This idea of quote promoting the establishment of a new model for the development of the real estate sector. Obviously, Beijing recognized that it, it over tightened uh, a couple of years ago. It's also not trying to reinflate uh, a real estate bubble. It's not a knife's edge, but certainly this is a relatively narrow path, and you've seen some sort of accommodative policies return. And you're starting to see the effects of that. You know, you're seeing a sort of modest uptick in house prices, new, you know, construction starts. So is Beijing out of the woods on this? And then I guess this is for the group, solving a short-term contraction in the real estate market is very different from solving this long-term issue of an over-reliance on the real estate or overexposure in the real estate market. And there's a sort of a tension between, which I think Beijing was trying to address in some of its actions a couple of years ago is we're going to have to take some pain now in the real estate sector to be able to solve this longer term over-reliance. But there's a tension now between correcting or at least moderating the downturn in the real estate market in the short term and trying to actually move this over-reliance on the real estate sector as a you know significant part of GDP in, in the long term. So, But first, the short term, are they out of the woods? So they're not out, out of the woods, but it's not clear how hard they're trying to get out of the woods, I guess, because it does still seem to me that they are willing to take some short-term pain to, tr to make a more long-term transition. That's not to say that everything that's going on in the property market is like pla a planned outcome. What we saw in the most recent data, so March looked pretty good, looked like people came out and bought quite a few houses, the sales numbers jumped, the completions numbers jumped, which is good because Beijing stated policy for three or four months now, maybe even six months, has been finish the projects that are under construction, right? So we're going to have to see a bunch of completions before we start to see a big jump in new starts because developers don't have the cash to finish the current projects and start new ones. The challenge was in the most recent data, 
we started to see a step back. We saw sales contract in April in most cities. We saw the lending numbers, medium and long-term loans to households, which are basically mortgages, contracted for the first time since, I think, April 2021, which means people are paying down mortgages, not taking out new mortgages in aggregate. And so the animal spirits, the people's feelings towards the property market are still very fragile. New starts aren't happening. And so after one month of positivity, we took a big step back. Now, just to pivot, to throw it to the other guys, you know, it's hard for me to, to see in the short term what the trajectory trajectory looks like. I think best case scenario, property market maybe gives like zero contribution to growth, i.e. isn't a drag on growth like it was last year. I think there will be ongoing support measures for developers to make sure they can get those completions done. And then hopefully if those completions can get done, they'll start new projects. And that tied in with ongoing support for consumption. Maybe property eventually becomes part of a just overall sentiment among households is improving. And so they say, okay, we're going to buy houses again. Longer term, I think there's a bunch of different things they're trying to do, but primarily it's that. It's like, if you ask anybody on the Politburo Standing Committee in five years' time, should property be 40% of GDP, they'd all say no. They don't know how to then get there. Can I now shift this to a bigger sort of property-related political issue, which is an issue Jordan and I like talking a lot about, which is taxation. Keith Brett tried a good article in the New York Times the other day. You, you love know, talking about taxation. We do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On why doesn't China have a property tax? And the lead of that article is basically they finally finished this national sort of registration of properties, which is sort of – it's just step number one. You at least now know where everything is. But then that opens up just the second, third, fourth, fifth – tier of questions, which are, are arguably much, much harder. So, I, Carl, curious if you have any thoughts about this from, from the political lens. In some ways, this is a no-brainer. China doesn't tax enough. Xi Jinping is a very powerful guy. It feels like maybe this is the moment where China could start actually making some headway on some of these longstanding issues. But Well, this would be one of the things that flip back to the people who work on econ issues. Is, I mean, the, the, the explanation I always hear is that we can't, in, we can't implement a property tax because it would have adverse implications for the property markets. And I'm kind of interested if that's, does that hold water as the explanation for why? It's not a big mystery when you wonder why would a country not want to impose a wealth tax in the upper middle class? That's really what we're talking about, right? And in the US and other markets, we have property tax, but you're sort of used to it. It's already priced in. The problem is the transition. So prices can adjust and they will, but it's definitely, if you put in a particularly if you put in a property tax that's large enough to net serious revenue to address local government finance problems, that's definitely going to put prices down, and those are the primary savings assets for households. And I think that's sort of the political disequilibrium there. So it's actually more, what you're saying is it turns out to more than just like, oh, this is a tax. It's actually, you're just, for example, taking away a chunk of my retirement income, basically. And, and by the way, in China, the most the rental yields are very, very low. People generally just sort of buy and hold, right? right? Which means there's no cash flow behind most of this. So you're basically taking an asset that is worth appreciation on paper with no cash flow behind it saying, give me cash flow now. And that's that's difficult. Why not a mansion's tax, though? I mean, why? So I understand you don't want to go after sort of broad sections of the middle class. But certainly, you, now that you've got a registry, you could you could institute a, a trial property tax program on properties valued over X amount, which I think even Xi Jinping could take a bit of a populist turn and, and turn that into something of a political win. It, what's so striking to me is 
thus far, as of 2023, they just show no creativity in trying out these solutions. As, I mean, we were, I think we were talking about this the other day, but, you know, there's some at the margins fiddling with trial programs, you know, like they did around the Common Prosperity campaign, which they roll out and then just they let it die in the vine. But this seems to me one of, you don't have to solve the, the fundamental political issues all at once. You could break this into more politically sellable chunks just to start to gain some traction. Yeah. I mean, why don't you go after the rich? I mean, those are people that are connected, right? But again, if going back to, if the reason why people keep talking about the property tax is it's going to net a lot of revenues, it's hard to actually have that based on a very narrow tax base. It's like in the U.S., they, we try to avoid saying that we need to tax middle class, but that's actually how, what we need to do. Yeah. I think it's true in China as well. I also wonder what the perception – what would the perception be if you'd, you're saying the mansion tax? I mean, would that – what would be the signaling to sort of the, the ultra elite or sort of many people at home offices moving out of Shanghai to Singapore? Well, I, I guess I'm just playing through the – what are the political ramifications when you are now just targeting a very narrow sector? I, but, but this question. is the – I mean, right. to me, this always comes back to what are the political ramifications of not reforming your fiscal exactly. system? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It's collapse. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I, this – everyone – if – Listeners can hear my frustration. Every time we get into these conversations, yeah. the typical response is something like, well, messy domestic political right. pushback. And yeah. I think, sure, but A, Xi Jinping has shown himself a leader who's willing to deal with some political pushback. Reforming the PLA, right, right restructuring the PLA is not easy. Right. right. So it's the question that, yes, would they face pushback if they instituted a property tax system or they tries to raise the threshold or amount they're collecting on income tax? Sure. The question is, what is the alternative for, for essentially trying to power a country towards rejuvenation right. on a medieval tax and fiscal system? Well, I mean, I'm interested in you saying you're drawing the comparison to the military. I mean, I, I, I this just to sort of segue to the, to the pension side. I mean, they've been talking for, a, you know, 10 years or so about the need to raise pension ages. And so many people say, well, look, this is something other countries have done. It's not a problem. I do think that there starts to be an issue when you really go up against not just the interests of ethnic minorities or even the PLA itself, but you're going up against sort of the broad, which if you're truly going for sort of a broad property tax or reform in the pension system, you really, that's a lot of, you know, retired government. It's a lot of retired government officials in urban areas. It's a lot of parents of party officials. I wonder if that does start to become some deeper line that's just very difficult for the party I mean, to cross. clearly, yeah. but clearly well, by, by the way right. they're acting. But I guess that, then, the, the then, the but yeah. then, the, then the question is, so you have to answer this by saying, well, why have there been other reforms where the central leadership has been willing to go up against vested interests, right? But it's just, this may be a broader slice of the society that's urban. I mean, the, the answer that I often have is that sort of this – there aren't as many issues that could bring middle class urban. I mean, when the when the protest took place in Dali and Wuhan over the medical copayment system, I mean that that was there's a slice of the urban connected urban middle class that could kind of get unified over some of these issues. I kind of think they're a little bit more sensitive than some of the other ones. Anyway. Final thought, then we need a unified theory of Xi Jinping that can both explain the fact that he can drive a three-year policy to lock down an entire country but can't begin thinking about ways that you could trial a property tax. But then immediately takes the zero COVID down overnight when you start to get those coordinated protests against across urban areas. I mean, that's the interesting, yeah. Yeah.
my half theory, which doesn't quite make sense, is that there are limits to what he wants to ask of households. But of course, COVID, he asked a lot. But you kind of had to, given that strategy, right? I mean, maybe it was like, it was a crisis that was so acute, there was no halfway. And eventually they had to abandon it because they couldn't stay halfway. Whereas looking in taxation in China, is there there a modern precedent for a substantial tax increase on the middle class in China? But this is again where the the thing that strikes me is not that they haven't instituted a property tax. It's just I don't see any willingness to even start thinking creatively about how they would like. So this is existential if you're starting to look at local government finances right now, right? So we're seeing that just a fast moving wildfire across local governments that is very much tied up into legacy ways that China structures local central relations, how they raise revenue, real estate, right? So this is not some, it's amazing the issues that get onto the top of Xi Jinping's to-do list and others that don't in ways that completely baffle me. Because if I were Xi Jinping, I would be spending most of my day right now thinking about China's fiscal system because that affects social stability. That affects, you want to wage great power competition against the United States. You want to pay for your industrial policy toys. You want to think about dealing with some of the demographic effects that are going to come from waves of sort of retirees. You're going to pay for healthcare spending. A lot of these are tied up with China's fiscal system, and I don't see the urgency on this. Again, this is why it's more of a puzzle to me of it's not as if he's trying and failing. Maybe it comes down to no taxation without representation, <laughs> which is literally what it was. And you're like, but if you start taxation, then you actually have to. <laughs> let's, let's use that as a, as a segue. I, I, I wanted to now switch to this most recent on May 5th to the Central Financial and Economic Affairs Commission. This was a leading small group that at the government restructuring in 2018 was upgraded to a commission as was comprehensively deepening reform. It's a small group led by Xi Jinping, but upgraded to commission status, which gives it bigger staff, more budget, more authority. Uh, Central Financial Economic Affairs Commission deputies are, are Li Chang, and then it's got Ding Xuexiang and Tsai Chi. Uh, so it's, it's really Xi Jinping's team at the core of that. So, you know, three big points that came out of it is one, she stating again, if, if anyone had missed this plot line, that a centralized and unified leadership of the party central committee over economic work is important. But then the two that I wanted to just dig into here is this idea, and you've been seeing a lot of this since the 20th Party Congress, this idea of Chinese style modernization and building a modern industrial system. That was also talked indirectly at the comprehensively deepening reform. It has a big Barry Naughton steerage vibe to me, big, you know, industrial policy vibe, but want to get folks uh, take on that. And then Carl, the one I wanted to direct at you is, and maybe we can start there. Now I'm going to quote from the readout from the meeting. It says, uh, population development is a major issue related to the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. We must focus on improving the overall quality of the population to support the modernization of uh, Chinese-style modernization with a high-quality population development. They heard briefings on those two topics of modern industrial system and demographics from two sets of regulators to some extent overlapped. But on the population side, it was NDRC, it was uh, Health Commission, it was the Ministry of Human Resources and Social Security and the Ministry of Education. Carl, maybe we just start at a high level, which is this issue of demographics we hear a lot. I think 
recently in D.C., you're hearing a lot of people say, you know, China's heading off a cliff because demographics. So can you just at a a sort of 35,000 foot level situate China's demographic challenges? I also could you situate these in global demographic challenges? China's not the only one facing a gray in population. No, no, no. In fact, I mean, sort of the decline, you know, decline to low fertility in an aging population is something that's happening worldwide. But the key thing to pay attention to is that it's far more extreme in East Asia than elsewhere. If countries such as the United States is like a 1.6, 1.7 fertility child per woman, something like Italy's at 1.3, Japan's at like 1.32. It's important to realize that in countries, in places like Taiwan, South Korea, they're down, Taiwan's around one, South Korea's down to 0.78, and China's heading in that direction. That's to say they're among the lowest of the low. The five societies in the world with the lowest fertility rates total are South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Macau, and Hong Kong. I think China's in that zone. And that's a very low rate. Uh, you know, 2.1 keeps your population at steady state. If you go below that, you decline. And if you're down where China or Taiwan or, or South Korea are, you decline pretty rapidly and you get old very quick. Can you distinguish why are we talking about this mostly? Why does it, at least in the narrative, feel like it's more acute for China than these other countries? Or is that just about narrative? Well, no, it's a part, part of it. Is, so it is important to realize that Japan began to experience a declining population back in 2000 and around 2010. Taiwan, South Korea hit that point in 2020. Their median age is above where China is. China is simply hitting the point that these other countries are, are, have already, uh, but it's following in their trajectory. So really what's happening in China is actually, it's not just a question of what will happen, it's just how fast and will it follow in the trajectory of the rest of East Asia, and it will. And there is, I mean, when those countries hit that level of population decline, they were at a higher level of per capita income. That's which, the key, yeah. one of the key points. This is also China is getting, is going to get older where it's, when it's far poorer than its, than its neighbors are. And that creates challenges because you have less resources to pay for things. In the meeting readout, some of the items that were discussed about, as they say, quote, you know, meeting this challenge of, of China's current population development is... Thinking about, you know, reducing the burden of having kids, forming the pension system, increasing access to child care services, and then abstract things like, quote, promoting the construction of a childbirth-friendly society. I mean, does anything that is actively being discussed on the policy agenda right now in Beijing, whether this meeting or outside of it, feel like it is taking seriously enough the challenge and putting solutions that will mitigate some of the the real drastic effects? So it's interesting. I mean, sort of you can talk about addressing sort of the challenges and the things that are listed are exactly some of the key challenges that China is going to face. I mean, China has been worried. Beijing has been perceiving these challenges coming and they've been talking about them for a while. Many of you may remember, you know, back in 2021 when they basically, you know, kneecapped the entire uh, private tutoring industry because they were worried about the implications and the idea that, Chinese families were facing too much of a burden educating children, and that was curbing people from having having children. If you put it in broader perspective, you know, every society in East Asia that begins – there's this moment where each society begins to freak out about, oh, my goodness, we realize that the statistics are going in a negative direction, and we're going to have to think how to do – what to deal with it. So Japan, it was the 1990s. Taiwan and South Korea, it's early 2000s. And for China, it's right now. And so the interesting thing is that many of the things that are listed in there, I'm like, oh, yeah, I can go back to the white paper that that, Ta- that the Taiwanese were putting out in the early 2000s. That looks very similar. The one other thing that also happens with all of these proposals is that each society ch- shifts towards pronatalism, which is to say that they not only begin to look at 
what are we going to do to respond to the challenges, but how do we push people to have more children? To me, that's actually one of the unanswered questions in China is what will happen when you start to see them begin to grapple with this question of what does it mean to have a family-friendly society? Uh, does it just mean building more ch more kindergartens or given China's own history of the one-child policy, does it involve something like a little bit more coercive to sort of push things? Yeah. That's what I don't know. Yeah. My question was also going to be especially with the ability to completely dominate the sort of cultural propaganda space. Do you start seeing pressure on women instantiated through propaganda campaigns that are sort of do your patriotic duty? And then, of course, the adverse effects for their societal relations, like have 2.1 kids or else you're not a patriotic citizen. Yeah. And I think there's a whole gray zone that could ha happen even before you get to that. I mean, you could start seeing, you know, school curriculum. Is it encouraging girls to have get master's degrees? Is that a good thing? Marriage age currently set for like, you know, 20. Do you start dropping the marriage age? Divorce rates in China. There's been a big drop off in first time approvals of divorce precisely because Chinese authorities in rural areas are like, well, we're, we're worried about the social ramifications of the jilt of the man who has been divorced, he's upset. So rather than make him upset and get his kin involved in a mass petition, maybe we'll just not be granting those divorces on the first time around. All this has real ramifications for women's rights in China. And I don't know what could happen going forward. This is something to watch. The chief economist at the conference board where I used to work, the old chief economist there, a guy named Bart Van Ark, used to always say, the easiest thing to predict about China's economy, or pretty much anyone, is what's going to happen to the population. I can't tell you what growth is going to be in 15 years. I can't tell you what inflation is going to be. But I can pretty much tell you with high confidence what the population is going to be. Speaking of Jude's point earlier about why aren't they addressing property market or property tax, why don't societies, why didn't China, why don't other societies like move earlier on these things? I think that's actually a fascinating question. It's actually also like something- Like the property tax. <laughs> but I think that's actually a really interesting question. Actually, it's interesting to want to watch the United States too, because we're actually, our our birth, our fertility rates have dropped below since we were at 2.1 in 2008, and we're now, it's been a decade or so, we're down like 1.1, 1.6, 1.7. I think one interesting thing, and I, I really grapple with exactly that question. It's the same thing I saw when I look at Taiwan and I look at South Korea. You, you really sense this lag. And I, the, the answers that I come up with are a couple. It's first, it's almost like nobody can believe that it's really happening. Second, each society has always been grappling with the issue of like, oh, we've got too many people. And so there's an instinctive, even when I deliver talks on this subject to my colleagues in the United States, the first question is, well, why is this a, why is this a problem? Climate change, isn't this good? There's, there's a, it's difficult for people to sort of wrap their self around, their heads around the idea that there was this issue that we've been struggling with, huge population, how do we deal with it? that the flip side could itself start to create problems. And then the other issue is that sort of many of the questions here, if you talk about them, people are like, well, what are you, are, are you implying that we should go back to more conservative societal? And so you're like, no, no, I just want to talk about what the statistics might indicate. You run into some interesting normative questions when you play with this. But that's a really good question. Yeah. The other thing, too, to Patandra's point, I guess yeah, I remember at, when we were at the conference board, work that was coming out in 2015, 2014 that we were putting out, which was showing already, I think China's sort of workforce, sort of new new workforce entrance peaked in 2015. You're already basically, and, and the big distinction there is there was one big, massive 
policy architecture. So it wasn't like other governments trying to wrap their heads around this multi sort of variegated challenge. In China, you had this big one sort of clunky policy, which even if even if getting rid of that in 2015 wouldn't have done everything, it would have been one of these early indicators that Beijing recognizes the problem. So you had all this data already coming in and- You had a best, sort of, they, they only were able to get, they only began to drop the one-child policy after they'd wrap, wrapped the population council back into the ministry. They had to degrade it bureaucratically. You had 200,000 people who were employed with that entity and that's a big vested interest to be like, well, and so many of them are now getting retrained as like, you know, uh, you know, child, child education specialists and so forth and early, so it's gonna be interesting to watch that bureaucracy move into a pro-natal Error, and I'm like, well, going to get interesting. <laughs> That's fascinating. I've, I mean, I feel like often governments in general, but China in particular, a lot of explanations come down to very inane bureaucratic kind of developments that have to be dealt with. That's fascinating. And so it's curious why on these issues where you do have these sort of built up vested interests, what are the dynamics that need to occur to where the leadership will suddenly say, we're willing to expend political capital to smash through those, right? And so in, in any of the big surges of reform all throughout the 1980s, 1994 tax reform, even WTO entrance, like a lot of vested interests at stake here, but some internal calculation occurs where the, the leadership has finally said, because again, we've had government restructuring in, 20, in 2018 that was massive, right? You saw wholesale redistributions of power from state to party, you had new, like we've had new regulators created. So you've seen this vested interest have basically been a permanent feature of the Chinese landscape. And yet there are moments in time where they say, we don't care. And I'd be curious to know what, what changes when they suddenly feel willing to do that. Final thing I want to focus on, then we can wrap up. I want to come back around to the other thing that was mentioned in the finance and economic meeting, which is this idea of a modern industrial system. Rewinding all the way in time to April 21st for the meeting of the Comprehensively Deepening Reform Commission. And that, by the way, led by Xi, deputies are Li Chang, Wang Huning, and Tsai Chi. The, and just a few quotes from that. The meeting pointed out that strengthening the dominant position of enterprises in scientific and technological innovation is a key measure to deepen and, and reform the, the science and technological system and promote the realization, promote the realization of high-level scientific and technological self-reliance. And then one more quote. It is necessary to focus on the major needs of national strategies uh, and industrial development, increase support for enterprise innovation, actively encourage and effectively guide uh, private enterprises to participate in major national innovations and promote enterprises to play a role in key core technological innovations and major original technological breakthroughs. So although this is happening at the Comprehensively Deepening Reform Commission, this doesn't feel a very sort of... 2013 third plenum vibe of, of letting markets do their thing. This feels very much like sort of core Xi Jinping thinking about, again, as Barry Naughton called it, sort of steerage, which is elements of markets, but going to have much more sort of top level design. We had at the MPC this March seen another restructuring where we saw Ministry of Science and Technology being restructured. We saw a new party committee within or party commission within that, which is going to guide this. We'll just let thoughts from the group on what are the likely implications of this, Andrew? I mean, you've been watching this closely. I mean, what was your readout from this now focus on this, quote, modern industrial system? Is this just more industrial planning or do you think there's a new twist coming? I don't see anything that indicates a, a major new twist. I think it's just more doubling, tripling, whatever you want to call it, down on 
making breakthroughs in innovation. I mean, I think there is the idea that, you know, they do, I think, look around the world and say, we don't want to be like, we don't want the long-term trajectory trajectory of our economy to be like the U.S., for example. We don't want our industrial system to get hollowed out. We don't want to be a service, primarily a services economy. So we want a very strong industrial system. But it's also an admission that their current industrial system is not particularly is the Is the sort of EV success China's having sort of the model of what they would like to be? I think that's probably right. I think, yeah, especially like innovation breakthroughs and key technologies like battery, yep. which then are going into Chinese firms, which are then out dominating in global, global yes, marketplaces. Yes, exactly. That's what I was going to say. The most important part is not only are they dominant in China, not only are they dominant in producing batteries and things like that, they're selling them. They're now starting to really sell them abroad. I thought the other interesting piece, there is a piece in the readout. I'm not sure if it was the deepening reform or the, I believe it was the Economic and Financial Affairs Committee or Commission meeting where they mentioned, Xi Jinping specifically mentioned, this will give us the capability to compete internationally. Yeah. And so really focusing on not just doing this for our domestic economy, but to get ourselves out there and not, it, it wasn't just about like dominating markets. It really had the vibe of like compete with the United States, right? On technological innovation and having a strong industry. There's a longstanding trend that's consistent with the 14th five-year plan of basically pushing against the tide of history and China's own development to pretend that China's future is to be mostly manufacturing, when that's simply not possible if you look at the math. It's already mostly a services economy. And in fact, most workers are in services, not manufacturing. It's only a quarter of, of GDP is manufacturing. And we know, so take EVs as your example. China is getting much better at EVs. But over time, you would think that the amount of household income that goes to buying cars would shrink. If it doesn't, you actually have a pretty pessimistic forecast. So it, it, basically the only way China can be mostly manufacturing is either you have to assume no or negative household income growth or you have to assume the rest of the world is going to make up all that demand. So basically they want to be like Germany but being much, much bigger and without the global demand to support it. I think it just doesn't work. In the Central Finance and Economic Commission readout, which you mentioned earlier, they talk about services only in the context of healthcare and education, and that's because of the demographic and broader uh, social issues. It's basically an afterthought. They're clearly focused on manufacturing, or at least Xi Jinping is. And that's just, that's just not where the economy is and where it's going to be going in the long run. And I think the reason for that, just to state the obvious, is national security. They, they were worried that the U.S. and others are going to cut them off of those core technologies, and therefore they need to have that insulated and be a sort of fully comprehensive, secure uh, supply chain, which is in the 14th five-year plan. Yeah, I mean, just in the in the comprehensive deepening reform readout, when they're talking about basically the realize the importance of building out this these sort of strategies for industrial development, the reason they need to do this is promote high quality, develop, promote common prosperity, and maintain national security. And I guess Carl, this gets to the issue of demographics, because this is point has been made so often, it's become banal. But a lot of the focus for Xi Jinping on technology, it's not just about sort of military competition in the United States. It's his view that essentially technology is going to solve a lot of the pathologies that occur when you have a demographic slide, right? So you got fewer people, you make your existing workforce more productive because you give them all robots and AI, and that's going to sort of magic, magic you out of this. Just a, a question as we wrap up here, do technological salute, let's imagine Xi Jinping's dream comes true and, and China is a sort of cutting edge leader in robotics and AI and digitalization. Is that able to essentially blunt some of the demographic challenges they face? 
some, but the book that I like to quote now is the book that just came out in the last couple couple couple, couple months. So Robots won't save Japan, and it's great. I just love the title. But I mean, it's the, a good album title. Too, I know. Ever heard of <laughs> but I mean, the, the point is, it's sort of demographics. But they're they're more the challenges are more than just uh, production. I'll give you one example that I like to find: rural elder care. I mean, I think that's actually who takes care of the elderly in rural. China. I mean, I think that's actually going to be a very big issue going forward. And of course, you've got to remember that rural China is very poor. You have to remember that even in far wealthier countries such as Japan, uh, South Korea, Taiwan, what you've seen is inflows of people into each of those countries up to, you know, three to four percent of the population, largely consisting of humans uh, from Southeast Asia to help take care of elderly people. While this push for technology, it may partially assist some things, it's, it doesn't fundamentally resolve some of the bigger issues. I think the demographic, rural elder care, what do you do about pensions? There are going to be a whole range of other challenges that are, I mean, and frankly, I don't, I don't think the pronatalist measures themselves. They haven't bounced the fertility rate up in any of the other East Asian countries, and I don't think they're going to have that effect in China either. And so China's going to be struck with stuck with some very, very difficult challenges uh, over the next couple of decades as a result of this. Parting thoughts, anyone? I was just going to say you asked whether there's anything new on this industrial system, you know, upgrading in these readouts, and I said no, and I, I think just i you know always tie these things back to what came before and before both of these meetings we had the two sessions in march and i the big takeaway for me from the two sessions especially the government restructuring was we're restructuring the data economy and the innovation economy right and then we're doing finance why are we doing finance to fund yeah. the industrial yeah. policy right yeah. so it's almost like both of those priorities have been there for a long time and i kind of felt like the two sessions this year was remember guys we're going to do two things this year <laughs> innovation and fund that innovation you know <laughs> and so everything we see this year i think will be in support not to be the dead horse but it's one thing to restructure some of the financial regulators it's not a substitute for restructuring your fiscal system. If you really, so I, I, don't, I, I promise, property I tax. I promise, I won't bring up tax every time. But it, it's like that's great. You can create a new sort of national financial regulator. You can restructure sort of the portfolios. But maybe for another another podcast, I think part of the corollary is that they are focusing on the capital markets. And I almost wonder if if they're more focused. There are some some things that capital markets can do, kind of to offset the fiscal pressures. So. We'll see where they go with that. Carl, Andrew, Gerard, thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thank, thank you. you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 